0: You know, I think one of the saddest things in the whole world is to see something that was once strong and useful, something that was vibrant and full of beauty, fall into a state of decay. A good example of that is the large cities in America. Cities that were one time full of hope for the future, full of possibilities and community and culture and growth, but something happened over time when those cities fell victim to apathy and and crime and poverty and people just fled them and now those cities are just a shell of what they once were. I think about major corporations that at one time were, were full of purpose, they had a mission, a great outlook, for a bright future. But over time, the vision was lost and leadership got lazy and comfortable, morale plummeted, and eventually the company uh, drifted into stagnation. What was once hoped for was never realized and the whole organization over time just went under. And the same thing happens to things as well. I think of a friend of mine who purchased a new car several years ago. It was a good-looking car. He wanted and he needed a new car for so long. When he finally got it, you would think that he would treat it like the blessing that it was. But to my surprise, he didn't take care of it at all. He never washed it, he never waxed it, he never rotated or balanced the tires. I'm quite certain that car has never had an oil change from the time he purchased it. And in no time at all, that car looked old and the, and the paint was dull and the interior was a mess and in short order, it fell into a state of decay. Whenever we witness the process of decay happening, we always wonder what went wrong, what happened? But out of all the forms of of possible decay, the saddest of all is the decay and the deterioration of the human spirit. I want to talk today about decay of the heart because it is a common place where many people find themselves. People who started the race well, but then they drifted away from God and they allowed their very character to sink. They allowed a heart that was once fresh and was once full of life to grow sour. And when you remember what they once were and what they have become, it's a very sad thing to witness. Today, as we continue in our series titled, Chasing God's Heart, where we've been looking at the life of David, you can clearly see this decay occurring in the life of King Saul. And David, who we're coming to know and love through this series, he has a front row seat to the process of all this decay that is taking place. So we're going to look this morning at how and why it all occurred. And I need to warn you that we are going to be all over the book of 1 Samuel today. So go to 1 Samuel and and good luck to you because we, we're gonna have brief scriptures from chapter nine, 10, and 11, many scriptures from, from chapter 13, 15, 16, 18, and 28. I'm gonna be moving fast, so do your best to keep up with me, and thank you for understanding, because we've got a lot to cover this morning. Now, your initial thoughts might be, Pastor David, if this is a series about David, then why are we looking at the life of Saul? Well, it's very simple. You can't really tell David's story without first telling Saul's story because their lives are so intricately intertwined. Uh, In order for David to assume the throne in Israel, Saul can no longer be king. So I think that helps you to understand why this message is so important. We are introduced to Saul early on in 1 Samuel, and the scriptures tell us that he was an impressive man who started out so well, who was so full of promise. We're told that he stood head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. The prophet Samuel had this to say about him in 1 Samuel ten twenty four. Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people. That's a very rare phrase. It's a very high compliment to be paid to another human being. No one like him among all other people. But in addition to his stunning outward appearance, Saul was also humble. Once when he found out that he was going to be honored, this is how he responded in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21 with these words, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel and is not my clan the least of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? In fact, when he was first anointed king, his response was just to continue to keep faithfully working on the farm where he was. This is how Saul started. He was a humble man. Tucked inside of him was a generous spirit. And you can see many times it trying to fight through. When he was first anointed king, some factions of the Israelites opposed him. But then after he was crowned, there was a battle when Saul defeated their foreign enemies. And so morale went through the roof. People literally said, bring those to us who have opposed you becoming king, and we will put them to death. They're ready to, de- to destroy any internal opposition against Saul, which commonly occurred to kings in those days. But Saul says this in 1 Samuel eleven thirteen: no one shall be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. And therein exhibits this gracious, noble spirit about him that the people loved and appreciated. Saul was only 30 years old when he became king. He was tall. He was strong. He was humble. He was a warrior who loved God and his future looked so bright. There was such great promise in what he might have become. But during the 42 years of his reign, slowly all that promise was wasted. It was all lost. And by the time that Saul died, He was driven by pathological jealousy against David. He was tormented by deep depression. His mind and his emotions were in ruins. He had lost the respect of the people. His children were alienated from him. He was incapable of having peace in his spirit. He was just a shell of what he had once been. And when you look at all the promise that was in Saul, and then you see the tragedy that became of his life, you begin to wonder, how did it all happen? How does a life deteriorate so so badly? And of course, the answer is nobody plans that. It just happens one day at a time, slowly. You see, Saul didn't set out to be wicked. He didn't set out to be violent. He just kind of drifted into it. And I, and I think the problem was he was not courageous enough to first identify and then to face the brokenness that was deep inside of him. And the reason that this is so important and the reason that I'm devoting an entire week to this is because I believe that you and I, we face the same choice. You see, as my church family, I often wonder about you. I wonder, are you running the race well? Are you on the right track? Are you running with a noble heart and a brave spirit? Are you opening yourself up to God and giving him the best that you can? I hope and pray that we all are and I pray that God will use you and continue to challenge you to grow in your relationship with him and that you will keep moving toward him because I love you and I love this church called High Point and I admire who you are and I admire what so many of you have become. But having said that, I believe that everybody here wrestles with brokenness in some way. Get one of us alone and review all of our life's history, and with every, within every one of us, you will uncover areas of some kind of brokenness, a habit that you can't fix, a train of thought that you cannot escape, hurts that have never fully healed from your childhood, traits that you cannot run away from. And these are all deeply troubling to us, although we often seek to avoid them. You see, not one of us is perfect, None of us in this room, we are none of us are without faults and flaws and sin, not one. Romans 3.23 says, "'For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God.'" First John 1.10 says, "'If we claim we have not sinned, "'we make him out to be a liar, "'and his word is not in us.'" We all have some brokenness, every one of us. But the key is, will we have the courage to face our own brokenness. I think when it comes right down to it, this clearly demonstrates the difference between David and Saul. Saul didn't have the courage to face his brokenness when David did. Two broken men, and one of them looked deep inside and recognized it, while the other one refused to. So this morning, I want to spend the time that remains looking at the factors that played into Saul's fall from grace. Because I believe the story of Saul could potentially be the story of any one of us. And I want to get as clear as I can this morning on what a spiritual drift or a spiritual decline or a decay of the human spirit looks like. Because I want you to fight it with every bit of strength that God offers you. And there's one thing that you've got to understand fighting this within your own strength and your own power just isn't enough. It takes the power of God, although there is certainly a role that, that we play in it. And so this morning, I want to talk about four stages of spiritual decay, four stages that set into motion the decline of the human spirit. And while doing, doing so, I ask that. You would have kind of a a running conversation with God this morning where you'd say, search me, oh God, and let me know if there's any part of me where this process of decay is going on. Well, here's stage one. The first thing Saul does that we read about in his life, Saul learns to tolerate subtle disobedience to God. You see... In this life, you have blatant disobedience, and then there's subtle disobedience. We are all guilty of subtle disobedience, and sometimes we are guilty of blatant disobedience as well. Well, Saul learned that he could live in subtle disobedience because after all, it's subtle. There are two examples of this found in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Early on in his reign as king, Israel is at war with the Philistines and Samuel the prophet gives instructions to Saul directly from God. Samuel says, Saul, listen carefully. I want you to go away to Gilgal and wait for seven days. Then he says, I will come and I will offer a sacrifice and I'll instruct you in what God wants. Your job, Saul, is to stay. You got it, Saul? got it, Samuel. What is your job, Saul? My job is to wait. How long, Saul? For seven days. Well, it's the seventh day. Samuel hasn't returned yet. And Saul thinks that maybe he's not going to come at all. And things start getting rocky, and some of his soldiers start to desert, and, and, and the, the morale of his troops is going down, and, and Saul gets really, really nervous. And, is, and as is the case with Saul throughout his lifetime, when fear gets a hold of him, it leads him to do foolish and sinful things. Saul had one job to do. It was to wait on God and to trust God, but he wouldn't do it. And he disobeys God and he suffers the sacrifice on his own, or he offers, excuse me, the sacrifice on his own. He allows fear and anxiety to drive him to impatience and he disobeys and he does the sacrifice by himself. Well, Samuel arrives just as the sacrifice is being offered. And look what it says in 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 through 14. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said, You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, that's David, and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. But instead of acknowledging his anxiety, instead of acknowledging his disobedience, instead of coming clean and repenting, Saul kind of rationalizes the whole deal. He says in 1 Samuel 13, 11 and 12, "'When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor.'" So I felt compelled to offer the burnt sacrifice. In other words, Samuel, my men were were deserting. The Philistines were coming. I realized I had not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt led to offer the sacrifice myself. Saul distorts the truth as if he, it had just occurred to him that it would be a good idea to offer a sacrifice when clearly, he clearly knew that his job was to wait, but it was subtle disobedience. It seemed like a good thing to do. He even made it sound like it was his spiritual duty to do so. But here's the deal. Saul wasn't trusting God at that moment. He was trying to use God as often many of us do, like a genie in the bottle. We want, he wanted God to make him a success in battle. That's it. Later on in chapter 15, Saul is at war with the Amalekites. Samuel gives him a word from the Lord. Just one command. He said, "The enemy, this enemy is so wicked that everything, all the spoils are to be destroyed, including the livestock." Got it, Saul? Got it, Samuel. What gets destroyed, Saul? everything well Saul wins the battle but once again he opts for selective obedience he keeps the choice livestock alive as if it was his choice to make once again he tries to cover it up with spiritual sounding language so Samuel comes up to Saul and he calls him out on his disobedience and listen to Saul's response in 1 Samuel 15:13 the lord bless you i have carried out the lord's instructions He's now talking with fake godliness. Hallelujah, amen, brother. Samuel, did you see my WWYD bracelet? What would Yahweh do? Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? 1 Samuel 15, 15, Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. I don't know why he didn't say the Lord my God. He said the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Yeah, that's the ticket, Samuel, to sacrifice to the Lord. Then Samuel speaks those marvelous words that have become so important throughout the scriptures and in our personal lives when he says to obey is better than sacrifice. You must understand, folks, that to know God and to love God and to seek his will in your life, you must have a heart that is open to God. Obedience is truly what God wants from us. But But far too often, we do our own thing and we subvert God's will, and then we try to put a spiritual spin on it. You see, when you're withholding a heart of trust and love from God, it is just plain foolishness. The same thing can be true of even going to church or being involved in some program or some ministry or reading the Bible even for that matter to do something that looks and sounds spiritual while at the same time withholding your very heart from God while you're doing it. Well, that's just fundamentally wrong. And that's what Saul does. He does this repeatedly. So I'll ask you what I've been asking myself over the past week. What about you? God, is there any sin in my life where I am subtly, or area in my life where I am subtly holding, withholding obedience from you? Maybe your life is prayerless right now but you've been rationalizing it under the excuse that you're just too busy, or maybe for whatever reason, you are nursing resentment against another brother or sister. You're trying to convince yourself that it's just righteous indignation, or perhaps God has clearly called you to do something, to serve in some way, to give up some of your resources so that ministry can move ahead more effectively, but for some reason, you're just not acting upon it, and every time that it comes up in your spirit, you just shut it out, with every type of noise and distraction possible. Well, I want to challenge you today. If there is subtle disobedience going on in your life, in some area of your life, please don't let it go unchecked. And furthermore, please do not cloak it in pious sounding rationales. And if your disobedience is because of sin of any kind, then name it. Name it for what it is. It's sin and then repent of it because Saul refused to do that. And that's where his decay began. So Saul just settles, or settles for subtle disobedience. You say that three times in a row. Saul settles for subtle disobedience. But then there's the next phrase or phase of his decline. Saul learns to tolerate a loss of intimacy with God. Saul learns to live with the fact that there's not much closeness there anymore. Turn to 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 through 17. I bet I'll read it before you get there, but like I told you, I got to move fast, and it'll be up on the screens. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit of God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. So they found out about David. 1 Samuel 16, 21 through 23. 23. So David came to Saul and stood before him. And he loved him greatly. Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, please let David stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was whenever the spirit of God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Now this... This is a particularly troubling text to me because it says the spirit of God had departed from Saul. And and, and that is not something that a committed follower of Jesus should ever have to worry about. The reason that this happened to Saul is because he made it very clear that he didn't want God in his life. You know, there's a difference. You've got to want to serve the Lord. You've got got to be engaged in a relationship with him. If, If you blow him off and you give him no time, you give him no thought and your life is not changed. From the time you prayed that sinner's prayer, something is wrong. You've got to want to love and serve the Lord. Saul didn't want any of that. That's why this distressing spirit came. And, and I believe that God is, is, is causing Saul to experience here deep pain. And he's doing so, I believe, in the hopes that he will repent and he will turn back to God. God. Clearly, with everything that's going on, Saul is going through a personal collapse. He's pretty much experiencing the disintegration of his personality. He suffers from violent mood swings, paranoia to tremendous anger. But then he discovers something. Whenever David plays the harp, it soothes his spirit and he feels better. And I believe this tells us even more about David and his heart for God and, and his passion for worship and, and his skill as a musician. But, but here's what I want you to recognize. I, I believe that Saul was using it all to avoid deeper issues. Look at verse 23 again. And so it was, whenever the Spirit of God was upon Saul, that David would take his harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing sp- uh, spirit <coughs> excuse me, would depart from it. You see, Saul wanted relief from his bad feelings. He wanted to feel better. But, but what he needed wasn't just music for some kind of a, a temporary relief. He needed to do some hard work. He needed to examine his heart, discover that it was hardened, and that he had distanced himself from God, that he was creating all of this. It was his sheer brokenness that was creating all of this pain in the first place. Saul needed to repent, but he settled for relief instead. And that is a very common thing that we as human beings do. I wonder if some of you here today are in spiritual pain because something is wrong between you and God, because you've learned to tolerate distance between you and God. Believe me when I tell you that this is something that God does not want, and this is something that you cannot clearly afford. Maybe you've been troubled in your spirit, or maybe you've been on a detour where you're looking for relief in order to feel better. So when the pain increases a little bit, you just get distracted like Saul did. You work more hours. You indulge yourself in mind-numbing television or or entertainment. You start to medicate in some way to disguise your pain. You fill every waking moment with distractions. You avoid addressing the real issue. And I wonder if you will have the courage to to ask God, how are things between you and me, really, right now? I wonder if you'll have the courage to, to do what Saul wouldn't do, and that is to spend some time alone with God and face whatever is troubling your spirit and move back into intimacy with the one true God. I hope you will, because Saul chose not to. He just kept sliding. He started out so well, but over time he he learned to just kind of tolerate subtle disobedience. He learned to tolerate a lack of intimacy with God. But then the third thing happened, Saul learned to tolerate poisoned relationships. Turn over to 1 Samuel 18. We're going to read about the dynamics of Saul's relationship with David. And the story of what's happening to David at this point in in, in his life is quite remarkable. In literally every aspect of David's life, God is blessing him in amazing ways. Look at his relational world. I want you to look at three verses. There's one word here that, that keeps popping up. Verses that describe how the people feel about David. 1 Samuel 18:1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Verse 16. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. Everybody loved David. Sounds like a title of a TV show. (laughs) There was just something about him, something about his spirit and, and his personality that people were drawn to. And all the while, Saul is watching this. But then there's another word that occurs in three other different verses about how David's career is going. How his professional life is proceeding. First Samuel 18:5. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Verse 14 and 15. In everything he did, David, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Verse 30. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well-known. Success is the one word that describes how David's career is going, and Saul watches him. This, this young man who Saul liked himself, who could have been Saul's protege. And Saul sees that people love David, and he sees how God is blessing him. Now look at verses six through 11. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in a house while David was playing the lair, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. You know, throughout the scriptures, it's amazing to me what a powerful and prominent thing envy is. All you have to go do is go back to the first family, and you have Cain and Abel. Then you have Isaac and Ishmael, and how Jacob hates and envies Esau. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because of envy. Leah was envious of Rachel, who had lovely eyes. Miriam and Aaron, they envied Moses because he had a more prominent leadership and prophetic position than they had. The religious leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified out of envy. Paul says in his letter to the church in Philippi, some are preaching Christ out of envy. All throughout the scriptures, envy is such a toxic force. It is universal. Envy creates sibling rivalries within families. Envy creates people undermining others in the workplace. Envy creates hatred and anger towards the target of your envy. So here's a song that's being sung in Israel Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. I tried thought about putting a tune to that, but I thought you'd laugh at me, so I didn't. And Saul is envious because people are singing that David has killed more enemy soldiers than King Saul has. And he's thinking, hey, wait a second. I'm the king here. And these people should be singing my praises and not David's. He's galled in his spirit. And and what was left in his heart just gets squeezed a little bit harder. Saul sees David, who has done nothing wrong, who the people love. Saul's son loves him. Saul's daughter loves him. And David goes from one success to another because God is blessing him. And suddenly, Saul is filled with anger and fear and envy. And so he picks up his spear. And because his heart has gotten so twisted, he somehow thinks if he could just eliminate David, it would remove the brokenness of his own heart. But of course, it doesn't because God will not allow Saul to thwart his purposes. Listen, when you get to this stage of decay, it will destroy you. Some of you have had spears thrown your way. Others perhaps are currently throwing spears at others. I don't know. So I want to charge you with this today. If you have a toxic spirit towards another person, if something in your heart towards them is wrong, something that's off towards somebody else, especially a brother or sister in Christ, then you need to do whatever you need to do to try to heal that. You confess it to God. You get wise counsel from a trusted brother or sister in the Lord. You go directly to that person and you start on the process that Jesus talked about in Matthew 18. And You have a conversation or a series of conversations and you patiently work through that problem, but you get your heart right. And I'll even get a little more aggressive with you on this as it pertains specifically to the church. You have no right to tarnish the unity for which Christ gave his life. You have no right to do that. Because when your heart is off towards another in the body of Christ, it will always produce disunity. And you got to clear this up. We've got to be the best we can be at this. Because Saul didn't and it brought on enormous pain and destruction to his community. But ultimately, it's what killed him. So Saul starts by tolerating subtle disobedience, and then he learns that he can tolerate distance between him and God and the loss of spiritual intimacy. And then his relationships get poisoned, and his heart gets toxic. But here's the final stage of his spiritual decline. Saul ends up betraying the very values that he once said he had built his life and his kingdom on. I want you, the the, the fourth stage of this decline we read about in 1 Samuel 28, starting with verse three. It says, now Samuel was dead and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, Shunim, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go to her and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. So Saul is now crossing over to the other side. He goes to this woman, the witch of Endor. And I hope you all know, and if you don't, I'm giving you some truth this morning, that witches and all of their activity is of the occult. Every bit of what they do represents the demonic. There is no such thing as a good or an acceptable witch. Get that through your head right now. They are all in opposition to God's will and God's word and God's work. That's it, period. So Saul chooses to enter the camp of the enemy of our soul. Initially, Saul asked God for direction. He asked God, what shall I do? But what you need to understand is at this point, Saul is not really interested in what God wants and what his will is for his life because that would involve repentance and facing the truth. Saul just wanted to know what will make me successful in this battle and in this life because that's all that he cared about. He really didn't want God's will. He wanted to have insider information. So of course, God was wisely silent. And God will be silent toward anyone who will misuse the discernment and the wisdom that he might provide. Saul was not living the kind of life that would enable him to make sense of what God was saying in the first place. And so now we see the extent of Saul's deterioration. The same king who outlawed the occult as gross opposition to the God of Israel now disguises himself to use the occult. If he can't get insider information out of God, he'll go to the witch of Endor. And he goes to her and he says, call up Saul, like pick up the cell phone, call up Saul. Now you gotta remember Saul, or Samuel, I'm sorry, call up Samuel. But you gotta remember that Samuel is dead. And I believe that God supernaturally manufactured the communication from Samuel to give his answer to Saul. And it turns out Samuel, who was feisty while he was living, hasn't mellowed at all in death. And he proceeds to pronounce the judgment of God on Saul's life. Look at 1 Samuel 28, 16 through 19. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has tore the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, dead. That's what that means. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines and thus will end 42 years of decline. And in verse 20, we read that, that Samuel immediately or Saul immediately falls to the ground. His strength is gone. He is finished. His courage and, and his vision and hope for compassion and humility and, and humanity and a bright future. Well, they're all gone now. This man who had been chosen by God, this is a man who, who that th- th- there were none other like him in all of Israel, who had been anointed, anointed by Samuel, who had been uh, uh, acclaimed by the people, who was so gifted and full of hope and, and full of dreams. He's now desperate, and he is fear-filled, and he is half-crazed, and he is a wreck of a human being, and there's no one left in the whole country to comfort this man who was once God's anointed, no one that is, except some outlawed two-bit fortune teller. So Saul leaves and he goes to fight the Philistines, knowing that this is going to be his last battle. And our final glimpse comes two chapters later when Saul, a defeated man, falls on his own sword. He dies at his own hand. The final outcome, of a life of spiritual decay is that you betray the very values that you claim to stake your life upon. I could share story after story with you of people who knew the Lord. They did great exploits, but spiritual decay started in their life. Just like Saul, they started strong full of hope, full of promise, full of the Holy Spirit, and a vision for where God might take them. But at some point, subtle disobedience began to happen. Loss of intimacy with God. They began to tolerate poisoned relationships and didn't care to fix them, which leads to the betraying of the very values that their life was built upon. Ladies and gentlemen of High Point, you must not allow this to happen to you. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down? You know, there is such contrast at the end of this book when you read it. When Samuel the prophet died, we're told that all of Israel wept. They wept because of all that Samuel had become, because of his devotion, because of his honesty, because of his fiery courage, how he represented the Lord, because of his boundless love, for every Israelite and how that wouldn't allow him to stop short of what God called him to be and what God told him to say. They wept literally with tears of gratitude because who Samuel had been. Then Saul dies and we're told that David wept and he had to command all of Israel to weep with him. But now they're shedding totally different kind of tear this time the people are mourning over what saul could have become they remember they wept because they remembered what he once was they remembered all of the promise all of the hope that came from his youth his strength how the story lying might have gone so totally different if Saul would have just given God his very best and, and saw the wrong of his ways and repented and, and brought God back into prominence in his life. When they realized the, the wasted potential of Saul's life, what could have been, they wept and they regretted. So I think it's very important to ask this morning, when you die and tears are shed for you, Will it be an occasion of tears of gratitude or tears of regret? Because out of all the forms of human decay that this world knows, the very saddest decay is that of the human spirit. Don't let this happen to you. You must guard your heart. You must determine that you will not just start strong, but that you will finish the race well. I'd like to ask all to please stand to your feet with me if you would. This message today was for every one of us in this place, as well as those who are watching online, as well as the man who stands behind the pulpit and speaks to you. I think when we hear a message like this, our tendency is to say, poor Saul, and then you think of someone in your own life who is in decay, and you kind of shake our heads, and we say, oh, poor so-and-so. But this message today, as I already said, is for every single one of us, because we talked a lot today about subtle disobedience. Let me offer you some other words that the, the thesaurus uses to describe subtle, elusive, clever, negligible, cunning, sly, crafty, shrewd. These all describe slow and selective actions that take us away from what God would desire us to be. This is when we are obedient to things that don't take much of a commitment from us. They are things that become easy, and we excuse away those things that perhaps we enjoy, but are clearly wrong. And let's just call it for what it is. It's sin. And then we wonder why we're not hearing from God and why he's not providing supernatural wisdom and discernment into our lives. But just like Saul, God will be silent towards anyone who will misuse that discernment and wisdom and blessing that God might give. So if you're not receiving the wisdom and the discernment and the blessing from God that that you, you want, can you see how this decline becomes like an avalanche? Pretty soon you're caught up in it and you can't stop it on your own. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way for anybody here this morning. Saul ignored his decline. But folks, we don't need to ignore our own personal declines because God is giving all of us an opportunity today to set things right, to recommit our lives completely to Him. I wanna open this altar this morning for an appropriate response time to the theme of this message this morning. I believe we all need to look deep inside with great clarity We must determine if we are suddenly moving backwards instead of forward in our relationship with Christ. Today would be a good day to pray to God and ask him to strengthen you to never start in that decline or to stop you if you're already in a descent on that decline. Maybe you're here today and you never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life. You've never given your heart over to him. You've never received his free gift of salvation. Your life on this po- up to this point has been a decline away from the only one who can change your life. Well, today is the day that that can all change. And for others, while this worship team sings, I, I-, I want this to be a very personal time between you and God. Just you and God, either asking him to strengthen you from ever going into a state of decay or to help you in, in your decay right now. And today I'm not gonna come around and lay hands on anybody at this altar because I'm gonna be at the altar myself and I don't want anybody else laying hands on anybody at this altar. This is a time for us to pray. This is a time for us to get alone with God. If you can't come to this altar, I ask that you sit at your seat with your head bowed and take a moment of time to search your heart and to ask God if there's anything in your life where this decay is occurring and let's make things right with him. After we pray, then I will come up and I will close this service in prayer. So as the worship team sings, you can feel free to come down to this altar. i no. Want to say a couple things. Um, We've been uh, gathering together, I've been meeting with pastors in this community for about eight years, and we've been praying that God would bring revival to Red Bluff. Transforming revival. I'm not just talking about good church services, I'm talking about people getting saved, people getting healed, people. Turning their lives over to the Lord and, 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 and our community literally changing, the fiber of our community changing in commerce, in everything. Good things, the blessings of God upon Red Bluff, California, just like I've been talking about, that David had and Saul did not have. And we've been praying for years and we've been hot and cold in terms of getting together as different churches, and we're starting to do that again. And, um, one of the things that we've talked about on an ongoing basis is how the revival begins here it begins in our individual hearts we pray for revival and we really need to pray first that god would revive us and i think that this message today is a good start because i think if we're all honest with each other there are areas in our life where we've let slip in our spiritual life there there are things that that if we talked honestly with each other right now we could all say yeah Give me an E on that. And and this is not to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad. Believe me, I'm struggling as well as I was doing this message. God pointed out some things to me and I've been praying about them and I prayed about them down there. The, The important thing is, is that we identify what is lacking and then we go for God. We don't let the world talk us out of it or into it. We have to go to God. He's the only one that can fix these things. And so by us doing this, do you understand? It puts our hearts in the right position. And so as we pray for revival, and I just want to say, I had a sister from the church come up to me several weeks ago and say, Pastor, you've been praying with pastors in this community for eight years, and we really haven't been supporting you in this idea of of, of revival in Red Bluff. And so me and a bunch of ladies are gonna get together. We're gonna start praying on Thursday, on Monday morning. And I believe it's at 1130. They meet in here after their women's Bible study and about 20 ladies are in here crying out to God for revival for our community. And I just wanna say to you, if you would like to come and join them, I'm sure they would not kick you out of the door. But I can hear in my office crying and wailing that God would do something in Red Bluff and it touches my heart every time that I hear it. And I feel like God is up to something. I really do and I feel like today is a message that's gonna be a turning point message. Because if we allow our decline to continue, we will not be effective in any kind of a revival that comes. We have to be right with God We've got to be tuned in to God. We've got to give him the highest priority of our life in order for him to use us in a way that could be effective. Because revival isn't just going to be church services. Revival is going to be meeting people on the streets. They're going to come to you and ask you what's going on. And you're going to be able to share your faith. It's going to happen in a lot of different ways. It's not just going to be in this church. It's not going to be in, every, in, in that church. It's going to be across the board. People's hunger and thirst for God is going to increase. And we need to be there to help direct them in that. You get what I'm saying? So please allow this message today to be a wake up call for us to look deep inside and and, and be honest with ourselves. It's hard to be honest with ourselves. It's very easy to look at other people and say, well, they need help. Yeah, they do, but you need help too. And so do I. We get to the point of saying, I need help. I'm your pastor and I need help. You should be able to say, I'm a parishioner and I need help. I'm a member and I need help. I'm a board member and I need help. I'm a teacher and I need help. I'm an usher and I need help. When did we get to the point that we feel like because we've been serving the Lord so long that we can't let anybody see a chink in our armor or tell us that there's something wrong inside of us. There is a wrong spirit. It needs to be taken care of. Don't let, I love that song, religion and tradition get in your way from allowing God to do a redeeming work in your life, a transforming work in your life. If that's what you want, that's what he will give you. But you got to spend more time on your knees asking him for that, and he will help you. And I believe if we do that as a church, God will start a great revival. And I believe he already is. I believe he already is, folks. We're past COVID attendance now. We're now on a new trajectory upward. We were going great guns and then COVID came and the bottom fell out of attendance and nobody was coming in, they couldn't come in. And then after they could come in, many people stayed out and some have still stayed out and they're watching online and that's fine. Hi, I love you. Thank you for watching, but come and join us. Come and be a part of your church family. Let's fill this place up. We, We were doing two services during COVID because we had restrictions, and a lot of people didn't like that. And the board pressured me and said, let's go back to one service. I didn't wanna do that. The reason I didn't wanna do that, because we're gonna to have to go to two services at some point. And I felt like we were already in the groove of doing that. Why stop now? But we did, and it's okay, and I love it. I love having a full building. It, it, it encourages me when I see this place full. And honestly, we had two services, and there were 40 in one, and 110 in the other. It was a little bit that depressing for me. But you know what? God was still working in that situation. But what I would like to see, and what is going to happen, is we will eventually have two Sunday morning services, and they'll both be filled with people. And it's not about the people. It's about their salvation. It's about their relationship with the one true God, and that should be our desire to have a strong relationship in Christ Jesus, but we should also lead others into that same relationship. So thank you for listening to me today. I'm still getting you out of here at 1130 after all that. If you don't think that takes skill, yeah, you you don't. never attended a Pentecostal church before that was a message in tongues and it was followed by an interpretation the scriptures say that in a public worship service like this if someone should give a message in tongue there should be an interpretation in other words she spoke in an unknown language as the spirit gave her utterance we didn't know what that language was so it blesses her but the way that it blesses us is when we know what was said and that's what the interpretation is for And I want you to understand there were other people in this room who could have interpreted what she spoke, but our sister gave both the message and the tongues, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be several people, but I know probably four other people in this place that right now could tell me I had the interpretation to what she said. That's how the Holy Spirit works. But the thing is, this thing that many people who don't understand Pentecost, they're afraid of, I don't know what is scary about that. To me, that is a beautiful thing. Whenever the Spirit of God moves, it lets me know that He's paying attention to what we're doing here. And He spoke exactly on what I'm speaking about today. And He is an encouraging God and He's drawing you to Him. That was the whole purpose of of today, to draw us closer to God. And I thank my sister for her obedience in doing that. And I hope you found it. It's beautiful. If you couldn't hear it, uh, it was beautiful. Rerun the tape. Maybe you'll hear it online but it was, it's a message from God to us. That's what's beautiful about it, and I thank her for doing that. Let's go ahead and close this service in prayer. Father, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that, that we can learn so much from both good lives and lives that went in decline. You show us, Lord, how we are to live, how we are to seek you, how we are to draw close to you. And when we do, Father, there is blessing and there is discernment, and there are all the good things that you bestow upon us. So Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways today, your spirit would go with us, and those blessings and wisdom and discernment would fall upon us, and we would draw closer to you and become more on fire for being a child of God to the point where we will wanna share it with other people. Father, we pray for revival in our church and in this community, and I pray that each one of us here would play an integral role in that revival through loving people, encouraging them, inviting them, and sharing your goodness with them. So Father, strengthen us. And as we leave here today, let us go in love. That's what you've called us to do, to love all people we encounter. So we thank you for that love, and we thank you for your presence here today. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.